Uh, well, good morning. Uh, great to be with you today. Uh, we are slap bang in the middle of a series, uh, working our way through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you've been around uh, over the summer, just over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been pretty much camped out in chapter 20, uh, where Jesus, I think it's fair to say, has been under pretty sustained attack. He's uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of people who don't really believe in him, uh, clearly don't believe his message. More than that, a number of them are intent on trapping him and trying to get him into trouble with the authorities. And so all through this chapter, Jesus has been on the defensive. All through the chapter, Jesus has been fielding a whole lot of questions and objections. He's had his authority questioned. Uh, He's been asked this pretty contentious political question about paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, He's been challenged about his view of the resurrection. Uh, And then finally, as we saw last time, he brings a challenge of his own. Finally, Jesus goes on the offensive. Although he does take time to answer the questions and tackle the issues of all of his critics, ultimately, He wants them to consider the question of his identity. As valid as all the other questions are, the most important one by far surrounds our understanding of who Jesus is. And for all the debates that we get into with people today, all the questions people bombard us with, this is still the central question. Who do you think Jesus is and how are you going to respond to him? Now, before we leave this chapter behind, there's one more important thing that Jesus tells us here. Jesus is saying, if you have doubts, if there are times when you really struggle to believe, if you struggle with faith, and and who doesn't? I mean, some of you perhaps don't believe at all. Some of you do believe, but you don't believe anywhere near as much as you ought to. To be honest, that's everyone at times. It's like we all struggle with belief. We all struggle with faith at periods in our lives. But if you struggle with belief, if you struggle with faith, and you actually want to do something about it, there's one more thing that Jesus says you have to know. It's hidden away in the well-known story of a widow giving away all that she had to live on. Now, I've got to say, over the years, although I've read these verses any number of times, never really understood what this story about the widow is doing right at the end of all these other accounts of Jesus debating with people who don't believe, talking with people who didn't accept him, chatting to people who struggle with doubt, talking to the skeptics. I've always thought it was kind of tacked on, completely unrelated to the previous verses. I've kind of realized it's actually the climax of what Luke is trying to tell us here. In fact, I go so far as to say, you'll never ever get the certainty and the faith in Jesus that you need unless you see what he's teaching us here in today's passage. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 20 and verse 45. As so often happens in Luke, we're presented here with a contrast. First up, uh, as we're about to see, we have the teachers of the law. On the outside, the teachers of the law, they appear very, very impressive. They're well-respected leaders in the religious community. They're experts when it comes to knowing and understanding the Scriptures. They pray these really lengthy prayers with lots of long spiritual words in them, and they certainly dress 
to impress. But I think it's fair to say Jesus isn't impressed. Quite the opposite. He he launches into this pretty savage rant against them. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now look, There's nothing wrong with wearing flowing robes, if that's your thing. Just as there's nothing wrong with knowing the Scriptures and teaching others. But if that's where you think you get your security from, if that's what defines you, if that's what it's all about, then there's a problem. That's certainly what Jesus thought. Jesus clearly isn't taken in by their outward show. He's not the least bit impressed by their proud external appearance. It's like they're obsessed with themselves. It's all about them. Which I guess is why they have no desire to serve others if they're not going to get anything back in return, as illustrated by their pretty nasty treatment of widows devouring their houses. Widows back then, they were the poorest of the poor. And just to try and put this in some kind of context, all through the Scriptures, all through the Old Testament, we have these pretty strong statements where God says, I identify with the poor. Over and over and over and over again, he says, when you give to the poor, you give to me. When you insult the poor, you insult me. It's like he's saying, my heart is so tied to it, so bound up with the needs, with the misery of the poor, of the orphan, of the widow, that if you move against them, then you're moving against me. And if you ignore them, you're ignoring me. And Jesus is drawing on that strain of teaching when he makes this severe rebuke. In fact, Jesus doesn't merely draw on it, he develops it in his own teaching. There's this pretty blood-curdling chapter in Matthew 25 where Jesus tries to describe the last judgment. Everyone is standing before the judgment seat and the Lord is on his judgment throne and he's looking down at kind of a certain number of people and he says this to them. He says, verse 42, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. All the people kind of look up at him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? And the Lord effectively says, I am so identified with the poor that when you rejected them, you rejected me depart from me, out from my presence. Of course, this isn't saying that helping the poor earns your salvation. 
His point is simply that if you have no room in your heart for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, it proves you actually have no room in your heart for God himself. So Jesus is talking about this theme. And then he looks up and he actually sees a poor widow come into the temple courts. And here we see our contrast. Chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Perhaps a footnote in your Bible that tells you that the original Greek word for such a coin was a lepta. Uh, these were the smallest coins there were in circulation at that time, smaller than what we'd call a penny today. Now, when Jesus sees this widow giving away these two small coins, he turns around to the, the crowds who are listening and he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, sadly, there's not a single English translation that I could find that was willing to be as radical as Jesus' actual words here. A more literal translation would be, she put in everything even her whole life. Or to put it another way, she gave all of her life. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. When the rich give, in fact, let's be honest, when we give, normally speaking, we give out of our margin. In other words, when we give, are we eating any less than before the gift? I don't know, we don't give quite that much. Are we dressing any worse than we were before we made the gift? Of course not. I mean, we just give what we can afford to. Are we travelling any less? Oh, no, 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 we don't give so much as to actually cut into our lives. By contrast, all this widow had to live on was two small coins. She gave both of them. She was effectively taking food out of her own mouth. More than that, she was giving up what little control she had over her life, what little control she had over her destiny. You see, when the rest of us give, often we only give what we can afford to give without losing any control over anything. We still get to do pretty much everything we wanted to do beforehand. But when she gave... She didn't just give her money, she gave her life. She gave away what little control she had over her future. She gave everything. Now, why is Jesus telling us this? Why is Jesus bringing this up here at this moment? It's a pretty challenging piece of teaching about stewardship and giving. But why is it here after all this talk about scepticism? Here's the reason why. Most of us in the room, not everyone, but most of us are Westerners. So we have a tendency to say, well, I have trouble believing because of my intellectual doubts. Intellectual doubts are important. We address them a lot as a church here. We take it seriously. But let's be honest. I think a big part of the reason we don't believe is not 
that we can't believe intellectually, but that we don't want to trust. It's like we're afraid of the implications of faith. We're nervous of what it might cost us. Listen, our problem very often isn't so much the disbelief of the mind, but the fear of the heart. We say, we can't believe, but our can't is shot through with won't, because at the end of the day, we're scared of losing control. Now, here's where the contrast in this passage is really meant to sting. The religious people, who Jesus is contrasting this widow with, are really no different than the secular people today who have no belief in God whatsoever. The secular person, the person who has no belief in God at all, says, I'll decide what's right or wrong for me. No one can tell me what the truth is. I determine my own truth. I'm in control. And the religious person says, I'm going to try and obey God's rules. I'm going to, in my own strength, perform as well as I can so that God will be really impressed with me, so that he'll take me into heaven and bless me. That's different. No, it's not. Because neither of them is trusting. Neither of them is giving up any control at all. Christianity is not this individualistic, create-your-own-reality philosophy, nor is it a moralistic, save-yourself-through-moral-conformity philosophy. It's neither. Think about it. The religious person is always trying to control God through their morality, through their good deeds, through their performance, saying, you can't let anything happen to me because I've been to the meeting this week and I've prayed and I've read my Bible. I'm a good person. I deserve this. I've earned that. I don't deserve that. And the secular person is trying to control his or her life by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with God whatsoever. I don't want to lose my freedom. Basically, they're scared. It's like they're spiritual chickens, they're cowards. They're both cowards. They don't have what this widow had, which was spiritual bravery. She was trusting God. She was giving so much, she had no other option but to trust God. She wasn't, she wasn't just losing control of her life, she was giving her life away. Listen. Very often, the reason I think we don't believe like we should, the reason perhaps there are times we don't connect with God as we could, is because we're scared. We're afraid of giving up control. It's not just a matter of, oh, I'm afraid because I have trouble believing. No, often it's more like we don't want to give everything. We're scared of losing control. Now, if that's the case, what are we going to do about it? What's the solution to this? How are we going to overcome that? Well, let's follow Jesus' advice in the passage we looked at last time and look at the Scriptures. Let's consider who Jesus really is. As we saw earlier on in the Old Testament, you see God identifying with the poor, But only if you come to Jesus will you ever truly know how radically God really identifies with the poor. 
I mean, you read in the Old Testament how God says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. And you're thinking, oh God, emotionally identifies with the poor. But in the New Testament, we see how God literally identified with the poor. Because when Jesus came to earth, he, he became a poor man. He was born, if you remember, in a manger. He was born to pretty impoverished parents. There was this occasion where he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Not only was he homeless, on the cross he was stripped absolutely naked. He became absolutely penniless. Only Christianity, of all the religions on the face of the earth, dares to say God actually became poor. On the cross, he was devoured. He became weak. He lost control for us. So if you ever dare to say to Jesus, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a prisoner? I think he's going to say, are you kidding me? On the cross, I was stripped naked. I was thirsty. I was in prison. Why? Because on the cross, I, who deserved to go free, got condemnation so that you, who deserved condemnation, can go free. I paid your penalty so that you could be saved by faith, so you could be saved by putting all your trust, everything, in me. It's like the widow is just a pointer to Jesus. See, the widow, as wonderful as she was, as brave and courageous and admirable as she was, was only figuratively giving her life away. When Jesus came to earth, he literally gave his life away. He gave his life. He was devoured. He lost control for you. Now put like that, why wouldn't you want to trust him? See, Jesus isn't saying, oh, please trust this distant, remote God with your whole life, or lose control to some harsh dictator. No, he's saying, I want you to give up control and trust completely the God who came to earth and lost control for you. No other religion says anything like that. Now, if you see him doing that, if you see Jesus putting his life in the box, if you see Jesus giving his life away, if you see Jesus effectively losing control for you, if you really grasp it, if you see it, it won't just melt your heart in the moment. No, it will equip you with the power to trust in him fully and thoroughly and completely. Let me close this out with an illustration. How many of you have ever heard of the famous French tightroper, tightrope walker called Charles Blondin. Anyone heard of him? Okay, uh, a few of the more senior members of the <laughs> congregation. Just to help you out there, for the younger ones who don't know who we're talking about, uh, he was a contemporary of ours. Uh, actually, uh, started before us. In 1859, on the 30th of June, 1859, this guy Blondin, he stretched a rope right across the Niagara Falls and walked across it. 
There was a huge crowd. 10,000 people showed up. They were very, very excited. Never seen anything quite like this before. Afterwards, Blondin and his manager, they're kind of chatting, saying that this was a remarkable success. Uh, and they said, that this is great. We, we, we've got to do something to build on this momentum. Let, let's do it again next week uh, and promise the crowds a stunt. And so they said, next week, come back and I'll do a stunt when I'm out on the rope, on the middle of the rope, over the Niagara Falls. Next week, sure enough, the crowd was bigger and Blondin went across and did this breathtaking stunt. Then he said, okay, it'll be an anti-climax to end now. Got to do something even bigger next week. The next week came around, there was an even bigger crowd. You know what the stunts were? One week he went across with a sack on his head. One week he cycled across the rope. Here's my favourite one. One week he uh, got a wheelbarrow, put a stove in it with a fire in it, took it out to the middle, made himself a quick omelette, ate it, and then came back. I mean, get that. Uh, one time, he, he stood on his head. One time, he did somersaults on the rope. Now, eventually, towards the end of the summer, he was beginning to run out of fresh ideas for fresh stunts. And so he said, that I've got to do something to get the biggest crowd of all. And after a lot of thought and a lot of chat with his manager, a guy called Harry, they came up with an idea. Blondin said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carry another man on my back across the rope. That means there'll be two lives at stake. and It'll be a huge sensation. And so they announced it. Blondin is going to carry a man across the Niagara Falls on a rope on his back. Everybody was excited. And of course, it attracted the biggest crowd of all. Records suggest that 100,000 people turned up to watch. But first, they had to find somebody who was willing to do it. So what they did is they advertised in the paper and they said, $1,000 to any man who's willing to come and be recruited to go across. Now, in 1859, $1,000 was a lot of money. And so perhaps, not surprisingly, a lot of people showed up for the recruitment trial. And having whittled them down to the ones who weren't too big or too this or too that, they still had a whole slew of them that they thought at least had potential. And so they took them right to the edge, right by the rope. And Blondin went out on the rope to show that he could do it. He went out on the rope and he carried a 200-pound sack on his back. He did his somersaults. He, he, he did everything. He just proved there was absolutely no problem with him doing this feat. Then he came back. And one by one, he went down the line of prospective candidates. Everyone, he asked the same question. Do you believe, without a doubt, that I can carry you across? One after another, every single one said, absolutely no doubt. Then he went down the line again. Every single one, he asked the question. So, will you let me carry you across the Niagara Falls on the rope? One after another... They all said, not on your life. <laughs> Every single one of them said, no, nobody would do it. They all left. See, our problem very often isn't just the intellectual, is it? Our problem is, are you willing to let go of control? Are you willing to place your life in the hands of another? Are you willing to give your life right now? Jesus would ask you, 
do you believe I'm sovereign? Do you believe there's nothing outside my control? Do you believe that I am Lord of all? Do you believe that I have authority over absolutely everything? Do you believe I'm all-powerful? Can you think of anything that I can't do? I want you to be honest. Is that what you believe? Is that who you believe Jesus is? If so, won't you follow him out onto the rope? Won't you take some courageous steps of faith? Maybe like in this story, it could be with your finances. Could be letting go of bitterness and forgiving others. Might be looking for opportunities to share your faith with others. Might be reaching out to those in need around you. Might be stepping out and using the gifts that God's given you. Might be overcoming your fear of commitment and putting down roots in the church here. Could be any number of things. But right now, Jesus is calling you to trust him. To live out your faith in him. To be courageous. To to let go of your fear and give your life fully to him. Now, returning to the story. What eventually happened was Blondin turned to his manager, Harry, and said, Harry, it's going to have to be you. I mean, the, the crowds, have you seen them? 100,000 people out there. We've got to go through with this. Now, Harry was absolutely terrified, but he did it. It's way harder than Blondin had imagined. Easier walking across with a sack on your back than when you've got a man on your back. Halfway across, he started kind of swaying uncontrollably. Whenever he would sway, Harry would start to sway back the other way to try to counterbalance. Now, we know from the newspaper reports from the time that at this moment, they were ready to fall to their certain death. At which point, Blondin yelled to his partner over the surging waters of the Niagara Falls, 160 feet below, Harry, until I get across, you must become part of me, mind body and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Don't attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both fall to our death. Blondin was saying, if you try to save yourself, you'll lose yourself. If you try to save yourself at all, you will lose yourself. Jesus says the same thing to you. You have to rest in me completely you must trust in me completely. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to say, Father, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I rest on him. Accept me because of what he has done. In me, myself, I'm flawed. In him, I'm perfect. I trust in him thoroughly and completely for my standing with you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Blondin, of course, could have dropped him and fallen. But Jesus cannot drop you. Do you know why? I'm going to kind of push the metaphor out a bit further. Jesus has already plunged into the depths, so you will never have to. So let him carry you. Now again, I want you to be honest. What, if anything, is stopping you? 
What if anything is holding you back? What right now are you struggling to let go of? Where, where do you still want control? I don't know, you, you're frightened of losing a relationship. Or your reputation, maybe. Is it all about impressing others, being the cool one? You're defined by money and what it can buy. You're still determined to earn your own way. Is it all about your performance? Is that really where you want to put your security? At the end of the day, is that really what you want to define you? Or will you put your security in Jesus? Won't you give everything to him? Won't you risk it all on him? Won't you hold nothing back? Because that's the faith he's looking for. That's what it means to believe in him.